uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but uh, most of us, if not all of us who have a computer, have probably Googled themselves, ourselves. We've done it. What's on there about Andrew Kerhulis? And there's not much. It's kind of boring. It's like, worked at this church and that one, find them on Facebook, not much else. Um, you know, for most of us, that's the case. Um, but apparently famous people, celebrities, uh, do it too. Um, and then they stop doing it pretty quickly because the, uh, you know, the scuttlebutt on the internet these days is pretty, um, pretty depressing. And so a lot of celebrities apparently stay away from Googling themselves. Um, but Robert Downey Jr. is an outlier. Uh, he admitted uh, that he loves to do it. Look, listen to what he said. I love all that stuff personally. Some people overstate their support like they know you. Other people just want to go on this chat site and say some despicable character assassination, which I honestly think they kind of nailed it. I do have that shortcoming. It's really fun. (laughs) So again, I I think Iron Man is a little bit of an outlier among his peers um, because most of what's said about these people is is pretty ugly. Um, And I was going to say, you know, what the Google search does for individuals, the Barna company, the Barna group does for the church. Uh, their surveys help us understand what people are really thinking about us, about Christians. Um, they survey all kinds of people and ask all kinds of questions. What do you really think uh, about these people uh, who claim to follow Jesus? And a few years ago, uh, Barna asked whether uh, people firmly believe that Uh, the church is making a strong community impact. And here's what they said. Uh, Practicing Christians firmly believe that churches have a strong community impact. I mean, you're here, you're hearing some amazing stuff this morning. uh, By God's grace, what we got to do for safe flight. Um, But the rest of the U.S. population who isn't involved in church, who doesn't, maybe who doesn't know many Christians or... um, isn't a part of a a gathered worshiping body, um, they're not as quick to sing our praises. Uh, Only about a quarter of the population agrees that churches have a very positive impact. Uh, But the plurality of U.S. adults, around 40%, says it's just somewhat positive, while non-Christians are inclined toward indifference. So 40% of non-Christians say no impact at all in the community, um, And then some of them are even willing to see harm in local churches' contributions. 8% very negative, 10% somewhat negative. Why why do I bring all this up? I don't have to tell you that we're living in uh, one of the largest spiritual declines in human history. And I get it. You know, we're here, we sing beautiful songs about the love of God, and we, we talk a big game about loving each other. But maybe that's where we stop in a lot of cases. Surveys don't tell us how to get out of the mess that we've made of things. Um, However, the church is still plan A for God's world. And it will remain so until he returns. We are his plan. And we have to maintain hope and, and remember his vision for who we are. That's what the book of Ephesians really is reminding us of who we are as God's people, what he's done for us, the song of the gospel, and then how we move through the world, something like a dance, 
as his people. And that's why we're spending so much time in the book of Ephesians the last few months. Uh, Carl Henry says this, Is it too late for Christianity to reintroduce depths of meaning which can be found only in the message of a supernatural salvation? Is evangelicalism's only message today the proclamation of individual rescue from, foredoomed, from a foredoomed generation? Or has this good news implications also for the most pressing social problems of our day? We here at Grace believe that it does. We believe that the gospel of grace still impacts society today. And yes, we do need clear eyes about the state of the church and how we're doing from other people's perspective, but we also need his spirit and his word to guide us to be who we are supposed to be, who God intends for us to be, to reverse this spiritual decline that we're in. If we ever hope to do that, we do need clear eyes, but we also need hope. We need his spirit. We need each other, and we need his word. And that's what we're doing today, to be reminded of who we are. As Patrick shared last week, God continues to bring spiritual renewal to his people. He is still in the business of changing lives, as we heard today. So even in decline, we mustn't give up hope for the church because God never will. God never will give up hope on us, and so we mustn't give up hope on one another. And using the language of the Apostle Paul at the end of chapter 4 in Ephesians, I want us to consider just three simple things this morning. Uh, what the church must put away, what we must take up, and then who makes it possible. What we must put away, what we must take up, and who, at the end of the day, makes it possible. With that said, I wonder if you're able to stand just in honor of the Lord who speaks to us as we read God's word from Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we look to you. We look to you today. And we look to your son. We turn our eyes towards him. Where you are seated, Jesus, at the right hand of your father. May the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. But Lord, we know that the things of this earth, even the bad news about what, we're, what people think about us can make us uh, forget about you or be distracted from you. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes to the things that you would have us see from your word today. Open our ears, unstop them by your spirit. 
And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you yet, I pray that you would awaken them to the beauty and the truth of the grace of Jesus Christ, that they would turn to you. And for those who have fallen asleep to you, those who are sleepy Christians, who are maybe Christian in name only, but are just operating like anyone else, I pray for them too, that they would come to a fresh awareness of your presence, a fresh awareness of your mercy. And for those of us who are following you but are weary and exhausted, maybe you've given up hope on the church, we just pray that your spirit would come and bring consolation that only you can bring. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to move in each heart. Move through me, even through me. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So first, what are we as Christians to put away? Uh, Our text begins with the word, therefore, uh, which means that we need to sort of back up a little bit to a few of the things that Patrick said last week to kind of get a running start into our passage today. Uh, Earlier in chapter 4, Paul uses this language of put on the new self and put off the old self. Uh, Last week, Patrick said that putting on the new self is not merely a change in morality, but more, but ultimately a change in identity. And with it, this new foundation, this new identity, we have been given new ways of living as his people. Um, So one way to illustrate this, he used this a little bit too, but is is the attire that we wear, the clothes that we wear, right? Um, I don't wear the same clothes to the gym that I wore on my wedding day. I've only worn that suit like one time, maybe twice. I think it still fits. I hope so. I need to break that out sometime. But it's far too sweaty at the gym for me to wear my suit that I wore 10 years ago to get married. Um, What we wear depends on the role that we're fulfilling uh, during that time. You know, when uh, ex-convicts are coming out of prison, they're handed their old clothes They've been wearing orange for years, some of them, and now they get to wear their, a new set of clothes because they're fulfilling a new role. They're fulfilling a new role as now civilians again. They're not in prison anymore. They've paid their debt to society, and so you get a new pair of clothes. You get to wear something new. And that's a great image because I think when we turn to Jesus by faith, Paul is saying we're, giving this, we're given this new role as his people, out with the old and in with the new New ways of moving through the world, a dance, as we've been calling it in this series. And with that in mind, this new life, this new identity, this new wardrobe, if you will. Um, Let's look at verse 25 a little more carefully. Paul starts, having put away all falsehood. Just want to pause there. Uh, For you grammar nerds, the tense and the voice uh, really matters Um, when we're reading the scriptures, when we're reading anything, the tense and the voice, right? So Paul uses a past middle verb, which just means that he assumes because of the gospel, we ourselves have put away already in the past all falsehood. We ourselves have put this away, this former way of living, of living lies. Paul assumes that for the Christian, he's put that away. She has put that away. And I think Paul is, one thing we can say is that Paul is assuming on the reader, on all of us, that we know when we are in redemptive history, when we are. So 1,300 years before, right after the Exodus, after God's people are delivered, are redeemed from slavery, they are given the Ten Commandments, the ninth of which is do not lie. And one of the ways you can think about the commandments is after 400 years of oppression, 
God has to retrain them. They have to unlearn some ways of being and learn new ways of moving through the world according to God's plan for them. And so he says, do not lie. Can you imagine being in prison for 400 years as a people, the amount of lies that these people heard day after day? You are worthless. You don't matter. God has forsaken you. Those are just three of the top ones probably. They heard lies for hundreds of years, and so God had to teach them how to be his people. Do not lie. They had to know when they are. Fast forward the tape to A.D. 33 or so. Jesus has, well, to Paul's day, when he's writing this, around 60 A.D., Paul has, or Jesus has lived and died. He was resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sent his spirit as he promised. And then Paul reminds them of when we are in redemptive history. And this is why he says to put away. You already have put away the falsehood. Because that is your former manner of life. That's not the way of Jesus. He also says we must put away anger that leads to sin. Um, It's the opposite of what happens on I-26, right? (laughs) At least for me. Do you know a group of people who never get angry? Nomads. Um, Seriously, though, nobody got that. Okay, I'm moving on. (laughs) I had to insert at least one bad joke. Okay. We often think that Christians should be angerless people. At least I grew up that way. Anger's a sin. And so I stuffed it for years and years. And it wasn't until I had kids that I realized I had a lot of anger in my life. All the parents are like, amen. But we're actually not called to be angerless people. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Verse 26 says that. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And I think existentially, we know that there are things in life that we should be angry about. Remember a few years ago, uh, my unhoused friend, uh, he was scammed of the very little money that he had. And it almost ruined him. Almost ruined his faith because he was scammed of the little tiny bit that he had. And when another friend of mine lost his job, a very um, lucrative job at a very um, top-notch sort of uh, investment company in Boston, and he approached the vice president because he he discovered that the vice president was uh, cheating uh, and and scamming, uh, in some ways, clients of a lot of money. And he stood up to him. And the, the president said, thank you very much for um, telling us uh, what the vice president's been, been doing. Uh, here's your paperwork and uh, here's your two weeks notice. We're going to let you go. But what exactly is anger that doesn't lead to sin? Because if you're like me, that's pretty rare. We exhibit anger that often leads to sin. So we need to learn from Jesus. What does it really mean to be angry and not sin? In John chapter 2, Jesus got angry uh, when the temple courts, uh, there's a part of the court um, back then where it was called the court of the Gentiles, and they had twisted it and they had changed it and morphed it into a place of commerce. 
And so what happened was the Gentiles were having a really hard time being able to worship God. And so Jesus gets incredibly angry because they were ostracizing Gentiles. They were keeping them out from worship. And in Matthew 19, disciples who tried to keep the kids away from their busy master, Jesus got fighting mad with them and said, no, 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 let the children come to me. In Mark 1, a leper runs up to Jesus begging for healing. And Jesus was indignant, it says. Indignant. And he says, he reaches out his hand and he touches the man and says, I am willing. So what was he mad at? Who was he mad at? He was mad at sickness itself. And then in John 11, as Jesus stands at the grave of a dear friend of his, it says his inner being um, was deeply moved, which connotes an intense uh, experience of anger. And what was he mad at? Who was he mad at? He was mad at death itself. So following Jesus means that we should be angry at certain things. Christians should be angry about certain things. We should be angry at things that grieve the heart of God, like sickness and death, discrimination, abuse of any kind, just to name a few. However, we know that we have moved from anger into sin when we exhibit the other things that Paul mentions in this passage, these other traits that Paul says to put away, namely, when, it, when anger turns into bitterness, when anger turns into wrath, when anger turns into malice or slander against the person we're angry with. Paul then says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, so when we lived in Boston, it would get uh, dark at like 4 o'clock. All winter long. It was miserable. <laughs> I'll be honest. Now, some of y'all wish uh, you, you lived there sometimes. Right? When you read this, you're like, man. And then others of you wish that you lived in Alaska, where it, uh, in the summer months, it's daylight for like 20 hours. But what is Paul getting at here? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's basically just addressing unchecked anger. Anger that just runs wild. And this is exactly where Satan wants you. For Paul and Jesus, invisible personalities are behind our virtues and our vices. They're behind good actions and evil ones. And he says here, don't give an opportunity to the devil. And then in verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think for many of us, as modern people, this might sound ludicrous that we're talking about the devil uh, in 2023. We're talking about things we can't see, forces we uh, can't pinpoint with a radar. And C.S. Lewis pointed out that one of the most lethal lies of the enemy is to make us think he doesn't exist. And one of the things that has happened when we, when we swallow that pill of the enemy that he doesn't exist is that we, we make each other out into enemies. So if we don't have a spiritual enemy, we're going to make each other our own enemies. And this is exactly what we see happening in our world. And this is sadly what we see happening in the church far too often, is it not? Making enemies out of brothers and sisters 
This is the opportunity that he's looking for. And if we, if we sin in our anger, if we move into wrath or malice or bitterness, remember, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who not only will forgive you for that sin, but he will give you what you need through his spirit to help us to put on what he envisions for us, what we are to take up, as Paul says. Let's look at that next. Most of us, uh, most, you know, most of these are really straightforward. Don't tell lies, right? Speak truth to one another. Don't steal. Instead, do honest work and share with those in need. But in verse 29, I want to just kind of drill down on that for just a moment. Let's look at verse 29 together. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, this word in Greek, uh, to build up, this word, we, we get the word encouragement from. And the word is literally to build up a house. To build up a house rather than tear it down. Paul is saying build up each other rather than tear them down. So I had had a long week this week. Just a lot going on. A lot of heavy things. And my phone buzzed and I looked down um, and a friend had texted me. And he said some words that just really built me up. They built up courage and hope. They, they showed me that God is alive, that he hears me when I pray. That simple text built into me the courage that I needed to keep going and to keep trusting. And so even for some of you, I know that encouragement does not come natural, okay? I've been here long enough to know that there are people in this church that encouragement is just not easy for you, and that's okay, by the way. But there are others of you, maybe even more, that it does come naturally, and you're really good at it. And I want to encourage both of you in the room, whether you're, it's natural or whether it's not, Paul is saying to do this to each other. This is something that we're called to do, to build up, to build courage into one another rather than to tear down with our words. You don't know what that simple text or that letter, a friend of mine sent a letter to my mom who's going through a lot this week, just to encourage her. You don't know what that meant to her. So I just want to encourage you to encourage each other. Uh, and maybe it's our moment, but I think the most challenging Christian ethic in this passage, there's a lot of them, but I think the most challenging one comes at the end. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, I think we have all sorts of ideas. What, what is forgiveness anyway? I think we have all sorts of ideas, and I want to just be crystal clear. What, it, what is forgiveness? It means simply to pardon wrongdoing. And of course, it can also mean to cancel a debt that's owed to you. So to pardon a wrongdoing or to cancel a debt. It could be financial. And there's a, a, you know, a parable that Jesus tells of the unforgiving servant. And in this parable, in Luke chapter 7, a king was owed a huge sum of money by one of his servants. Something like millions and millions of dollars. Uh, a debt that he could never repay. If he had 20 lifetimes, he could never repay the king uh, the debt that he owed. And you probably know the story. 
the king forgave him every penny. He didn't make him pay. He absorbed the debt himself. He didn't make the servant pay. And from this parable, Tim Keller names uh, four steps to biblical forgiveness. I can't recommend this book enough by Tim Keller. Um, If you're like me and you need help forgiving somebody or multiple people in your life, this book is a tremendous resource for us. And he names four steps, and I want to walk us through them really quickly. First, for biblical forgiveness to take place, we must name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than excusing it. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is to will their good. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt yourself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. And finally, it is to aim for, resur- or for res- reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. Keller says that if we omit any of these steps, we're actually not pursuing biblical forgiveness. Tell the truth. Empathize with them as a fellow sinner. Release them from wrongdoing by forgiving them rather than making them pay you back. And finally, aim for reconciliation. What is that? Fancy word just means that two disparate halves come back together. And look, I don't have time to explain how this would work in every situation in your life. There's lots of nuances here. But is the, are we even aiming to come back together? I think for many of us, we have broken off relationship totally. And we couldn't dream of sending an email saying, I forgive you. Couldn't even dream of it. But what if Christ and what he's done helps us to bridge that gap a little bit? Maybe through prayer, that gap gets a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller. So I'm not saying send this email today. Some of you, you can. Some of you have to pray towards this. But these are the steps that we can engage in. You know, but again, look, you don't know what she did to me. You don't know what he's like. You don't know if I, I mean, how could I possibly forgive that person for what he did to me? And I think there's also the question with forgiveness because of our misunderstanding of it sometimes. Uh, where's the justice in all this? These are really good questions, questions that have been in my mind all week too. But I want you to say, I want to say this one thing, this one-liner Sometimes there's a one-liner that just like hits you square between the eyes. And this one did for me this week. Ronald Rollheiser said this. Whatever pain is not transformed is transferred. This is why it's so important to learn how to forgive as we have been forgiven. Because hurt people hurt people. Wounded people wound people. And if we're going to change the decline in the church. We can't be responsible for more church hurt. Don't we want to be responsible for church healing? And the only way we're going to be part of a a community that's about healing rather than hurting is if we deal with our stuff with Jesus. We say, Jesus, I'm going to look at the gospel. I'm going to look at the cross and realize that you paid for me, that I don't deserve what you've given me, and yet you love me. 
And yet you did all of this for me. Dying in my place. Rising for me. Sending your spirit for me. And so I can pursue forgiveness because you have pursued it for me. This is how it's possible, friends. We don't have to work up the courage. It's possible because of him. He is who makes this possible. And that's my final point. As I mentioned in the beginning, we are living through one of the greatest moments of spiritual decline in history. And unless we together put on the new self and walk in the ways of Jesus as his hands and feet, someone said this recently, if we do not do that, all we will do is manage decline. Manage spiritual decline. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a a part of a movement that's just trying to manage decline, just stop bleeding out members. I want to be about the movement of Jesus in the world, don't you? The living, breathing Jesus who's still transforming lives and saving people today and seeing people's homes turned inside out and marriages transformed and people's hearts made alive. Don't you want to be a part of that? I do. I don't want to be about managing decline. That's not what we're after. That's not what Jesus is after for his church. And so are we going to choose to be petty and bitter and bored with the things of God? Or are we going to shower the next generation with the gospel of grace in word and deed? We must put him in the center of our Christian life or we will put self where he is supposed to be. And that's a weakness of cultural uh, forgiveness that Keller identified in his book. He says, you know, it's essentially strictly for you. If you choose to forgive, it's for you. It's to be free of some weight. It's to, be, to feel better, to have peace of mind. All good things, by the way, and that can, that can happen through forgiveness. But that's not why we forgive. We don't forgive for ourselves predominantly. We forgive for him and for the other person. That they would experience what we've experienced as Christians. That he loves us so much to forgive us on the cross. And we want to extend that forgiveness to another sinner like us. He says this, In Christian forgiveness, we express forgiveness long before we feel its effects. I want to get an amen from that. Anybody? We express forgiveness long before we feel the effects of it, oftentimes. And that's hard. But again, this isn't cultural forgiveness, which is all about us. This is all about God. And this is why we can extend it. Even if we don't feel like it, even if we don't feel great about it, we can choose to forgive. Because Jesus didn't feel great about forgiving us, did he? Yes, it was for the joy set before him, but he endured that. It wasn't all fun and games for him. It wasn't an exciting experience. It was miserable. And yet he did it because of his love for us. Just a few more things. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. God himself alone could pay the infinite debt that we owe, but he had to become human to pay for human sin. This is why Jesus had to come. God became man to pay the debt 
the, the infinite debt. A man could never pay it. We could never pay it. We could never be good enough to pay back the debt. This is why God must come. But to stand in the place of sinners, to stand in the place of human sinners, he had to become a human. He had to become like us to know what it feels like to live in a broken world and to stand in the place of broken humans. He had to be broken for us. The perfect one became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He got our brokenness. He got our sin. He got our envy. He got our slander. He got our malice. He got our wrath so we could get his righteousness. This is the great exchange that happened on the cross. This is why it's he who makes it possible. The cross proves just how seriously God takes our sin our selfishness, our hate. And this is why we can take sin seriously. This is why we can take injustice seriously and call it what it is. We're not excusing it. We're calling it what it is. And yes, our justice system is broken, is limited. And yet we can still pursue justice because this is exactly what God did. God poured out his wrath on Christ because he is a just God. But God poured out his wrath on Christ because he is a merciful God too. Justice and mercy meet in the cross. And this is why we can pursue truth with one another when someone hurts us, but we can also extend forgiveness with one another when someone hurts us. This is the gospel, friends. This is the power. This is the dance that he's invited us into by his spirit. Speaking of the spirit, we can grieve him. What's that all about? Really quick. It's important to see that we can grieve the spirit. Because I grew up thinking the Spirit was kind of like the force in Star Wars. This impersonal force out there in the ether, kind of guiding things somehow, some way. But the Spirit can grieve. What does that mean? It means he's a person. He has feelings. And if the gospel takes effect in us and animates us, it means that we want to live under his smile. We want to live to delight him. And how do we do that? We tell the truth. We pursue honor and encouragement, tenderness, kindness. We forgive. This is how we make him smile. And we grieve him. Just like we grieve anyone who loves us when we hurt others, when we don't forgive, when we withhold, when we slander, we grieve God, the Spirit of God. And he says, don't grieve him because we were sealed by the day of, until the day of Christ. Ephesians 1, this was a long time ago, so I don't expect you to remember it. It says in chapter 1, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So when you place your faith in Jesus, when you believe the gospel, the, the Spirit places his seal on you that you are God's forever. And in the ancient world, seals uh, were often used on official documents of Rome. And it was given to the courier, and the courier was ordered, hey, if this seal breaks between now and where you're delivering it, you will be executed. And so the seal was proof that nothing on the inside was tarnished. Nothing on the inside was seen until it was given to its intended recipient. So when, this, when you put your faith in Jesus, what is God saying? You are sealed with God's Spirit until the day of Christ. Why wouldn't you want to please someone who loves you with an unbreakable seal? 
There's no other love like that in the world. Why wouldn't you want to delight him instead of grieve him? God makes this all possible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one, living and coursing through our veins, coursing through this church as his body. And finally, he says we are members one to another. And this is why we should tell the truth, because we're members of his body. Last thing I say, and then I'll pray. Uh, because they shared the womb, my twin daughters have uh, a very unique bond. Uh, they share almost everything. Uh, even the things they share, of course, they fight over, but they share everything. It's the cutest thing when we give them like a little chocolate. Let's say we give them two uh, chocolate kisses. Oh, I'm going to go give Evie one. Every time. I'm like, I want to be generous like that. because Sometimes I want to keep both, put them, pocket them both. But they are sharing everything. What is, what is Paul saying? We share Christ's body, his family, the church. We share in the good news of Jesus together. We share in the blood that was spilled for us. We share in the spirit. We share in the goodness of his word. We share in the future hope that we have, we share so much more than we could possibly imagine. This is why we tell the truth. This is why we act in ways becoming of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is how the decline that we're all living through begins to shift. When we live like his people. When we live under his smile. Before I pray, I, I just want to encourage you to put on the new self to break out that new wardrobe this week in one practical way. For some of you, you need to pray that you could forgive another person. Some of you need to pray a lot harder than others. I understand that. Some of you have been praying, but I just want to encourage you to keep praying. Maybe that's part of that, that chasm that has happened between you and them. Maybe that chasm can begin to regress a little bit to narrow a little bit. Some of you need to experience God's forgiveness for the first time. And that can happen this week. All you need to do is ask, and he will give it to you forever. Others of you need to extend uh, an encouraging word, a text, a call, write a letter. I don't know what it is for you, but I actually want us to stand and pray to close. Can we do that now? Let's stand up together as his people, the body. And my hands are sweaty thinking about it, but if you got someone close by, maybe grab a hand. Grab a hand, symbolic of the family that we are, the members that we are to one another. I want to give you just a, a quick moment of silence to think about what you are going to do this week because of Christ. And then I'll close this in prayer. And if the worship team wants to come up, and we'll just sing right after that. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to speak to our hearts. We are yours. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, and we want to glorify you with our bodies, with everything that we do. We want to glorify you. We want to live under your delightful smile. We don't want to grieve you through holding grudges. 
through withholding forgiveness from those who have hurt us. Vengeance is yours, says the Lord. It's not ours, Lord. Forgive us for trying to enact revenge. That, that's not our place. All we can do is forgive. You are the just one. You will deal with them in time according to your justice, but Lord, help us to forgive. Help us to tell the truth. Help us to be family in Jesus. We pray as we sing that you would be glorified and you would be worshiped for all the goodness, for all the mercy, for all the patience that you have shown to us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.